Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Friends, one of the things I'm convinced of and concerned of is that the people in our churches don't know their Bibles very well. And I really think who is at fault in that are the pastors. Let me just blame the pastors. I generally feel that's the the most constructive thing I can do at many conferences I speak at. Just load guilt on the pastors. Put instruction in it with it, which can motivate them in certain directions. But I think it's, it's fine if you read books by Chuck Swindoll or Danny Aiken, but do people in your pews know what Nehemiah is about? Would they know when to turn to the book of James? When, when they see a challenge going on in their church, do they reach for a book by Mark Dever or do they reach for 1 Corinthians? I mean, do, I'm fine. I wouldn't write books if I didn't think you should read modern books. But I would really like for people in our pews to know God's Word. Not just know God's Word in the sense they've memorized a lot of verses. That's a good thing to do but understand what the books of the Bible are about. So here's, here's just a question to you. Uh, and I want you particularly to answer if you are the main preacher or you're planning to be the main preacher at a church, because I wanna make sure you know this so that you can teach others. If you wanted to talk to somebody about how strange Christians are, what book would you go to in the Bible? Got to put up your hand, somebody. Put up your, put up your hand. <laughs> pastors can play. Any pastors here, or if you're training to be a pastor. Yes. What's your name? Say again. Okay. What book? Yes. Excellent answer. First Peter. That's where I would go to. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter. And let's think about that question. How are Christians special? I think in Peter's first letter, we see three answers to this question. Christians have a special identity, a special perspective, and a special characteristic. A special identity, a special perspective, and a special characteristic. And I think we see all those mentioned in the space of just a few verses in chapter 1. So let's just look at chapter 1. In fact, let's just go, let me start at verse 14. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, 
but ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Friends, I think a good summary of this teaching for us as Christians is that we are different. We see things differently. We live differently. Let me just say that again. We are different. We see things differently. We live differently. Uh, Christians, Peter says here, first have a special identity. We are different. We're, we're not conformed to the world. Look at verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We, if we're really Christians, we are nonconformists. That is, we don't accept the unbelieving world's reading of things, their schema, their framework. Peter here is saying, do not accept the way of looking at things that is suggested by the passions of your former ignorance, your ignorant desires. And that ignorance is probably a reference to their being Gentiles. So ignorant of God and his law, because to be a, a Gentile was to be Bible-less, promise less, God-less. So he's saying, Peter's saying, don't be forced back into that mold that used to have you when you didn't know about God and his promises because you didn't have his word. Don't, don't go back into those desires. Well, why shouldn't Christians conform to those desires? Well, Peter says in verse 15, look again at verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes here, of course, the book of Leviticus, where God spoke to his Old Testament people and told them that they were to reflect his character. That is, as they were coming out of Egypt physically, so they were to separate from everything else that was false and wrong spiritually as well. That Hebrew root, Kadesh comes from a root which means to divide. Well, what God does, he, he divides or separates himself from all that is unclean. Well, the separation of his people from the world and to God is called in the Bible holiness. And so he says here, be holy in all your conduct. So it's God who has called us. It's God who has given us new life, a new birth, to use Jesus' language. So it's not surprising that we should be like him, that we should, we should look like him, that there should be a, a family resemblance. Because as he says here in verse 14, we're obedient children. Now, certainly 
all of the Christians that Peter was writing this letter to were not underage. When he calls them children, he doesn't mean that they were like literally physical minors scattered across Asia Minor. He's not saying that at all. No, Peter's calling them children here. Why? Well, because they are all children of God. It really matters who your parents are. I mean, just think about yourself. Most of us can think of ways in which God blessed us richly by giving us the parents that he did. Some of us can also think of some ways that our parents have had a less positive effect on us. But there is no denying that we parents reproduce ourselves sometimes uncannily in our children, much often to our children's chagrin. The apple doesn't really fall far from the tree. Well, listen, if that's true of human parents, how much more is that true of God with us? who literally remakes our spirits by his spirit. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So God is our father as Christians. God is our father as Christians in a special way, not simply by creation, and that's the sense in which there is a fatherhood of God of the whole world. He is the creator of the whole world but by redemption, because he didn't just sovereignly generate us through Adam and Eve, but he has regenerated us. He has given us new birth by his spirit, and therefore his character, his traits, quite naturally then begin to appear in us. So what we Christians need to do is sort of come out of hiding. We should, we should come out of the closet to our friends. We should show by our words and by our action whose children we really are. Born of his spirit, it's not surprising that we are to and, and that we will resemble our heavenly father. So if God is our father, we are his children and we must be like him. We have this special identity. Now, I'm gonna get on to imperative verbs where we're told we should do stuff, but just particularly to those of you who are gonna be preachers, be real careful with imperative verbs before you give the indicative. And Peter here is giving us the indicative. He's letting us know that if we're really Christians, we are different. Now, he's about to go ahead and say, so be different. But until you can act, but, but until you are different, all you can do is pretend to be different in your actions. But what he's trying to do is first help Christians better understand who we really are. Our identities are given to us by God. And all the diversity we can, we can find, you know, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all the different languages and tribes of the world, they are as nothing compared to the unity we have with God as our Father and his spirit indwelling us. It, it, diversity is very, very common in hell. Diversity is not a uniquely Christian characteristic. Unity in diversity, now that's uniquely Christian. Having one spirit, which is more important than all of the things that separate us. Well, that's not like the world. That's because we have the same heavenly father. So we have to begin any ethics, we have to begin any personal spirituality by understanding our identity. Who are we? Well, we have this special identity. But Peter says here, we, 
we have also a special perspective. That is, we're not, we're not, it's not just that we are different, but we see things differently. We have a special perspective on life. Look at verse 17. You know, we, we know a judgment is coming, that we will be judged. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is one of the basic arguments in, in Peter's first letter. If you look, turn over to, to chapter 4, you look at verse 5, and he talks about those people who are your old friends who are trying to get you to go to those godless parties again. And he says in verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter keeps in our view the judgment that's coming, and that actually has a practical effect on what we do. Peter makes this argument saying that we should live as strangers here in reverent fear. In reverent fear. So having discussed their special identity, that they are children of the Heavenly Father, Peter now asks the question and answers the question, how? How are we different like this? I mean, think of it. These people that Peter is describing are holy to God and strange to the world. But how did this happen? Well, Peter answers that here that we have been made holy and strange by the redemption of Christ. We have, he says, not merely been enlightened and educated by being no longer in darkness, like being let out of Plato's cave, and we now see the light. It's not only that. It's not merely that we've been eternally elected, though we, we have been that also. We have been purchased, he says, at great cost. Christians have a special perspective on life because we have been ransomed. Look at verse 18, that word ransomed means to, to buy something back or like we would redeem a previously pawned item or like at the time of a soldier had been captured in battle, he could literally be redeemed or more commonly even like a slave was ransomed from slavery for a certain amount of money and set free. That's the image that Peter is using here. Look, look at verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Okay, how? Ransoming is usually very expensive. It's the obtaining of a human in this case. How on earth was something as expensive as you obtained? Well, he says, not with perishable things. And then he doesn't say, you know, like wood or used books. No, he says things such as silver or gold. The greatest things of this world, they're just perishable compared to what he's talking about. Those things are, are powerless to redeem anybody. You can be given a billion dollars today, and you will have zero ability by virtue of that money alone to redeem anybody. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but here's how you were ransomed. Here's how you were redeemed. With the precious blood of Christ, verse 19 like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
So Peter tells these Christians that they owe their special state to no action of the world, no sacrifice of passing worldly wealth, but rather to the gift of the precious blood of Christ. They were not purchased, he says in verse 18, with with silver and gold. You learn up in verse 7, he says, that perishes even though refined by fire. They have been redeemed by nothing of this world's goods, but by the blood of the one who was chosen before the creation of the world and who will outlast this world. And they were not purchased with anything that has impurities or defects, such as even the finest metals have, but rather with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And his, his blood is special to us and precious, not because of any kind of superstitious regard we have for its unique chemical composition or because of some magical physical force No, Christ's blood is precious to us because of who he is, eternally foreknown before the foundation of the world, verse 20, predestined, made manifest in these last times for your sake, verse 20, or verse 19, without blemish or spot, perfect. Verse 18, our ransom, our redeemer. Verse 21, he's the ground of our faith, and our hope. He is the one who has purchased us. We are his. So bought by this one, we know that it is to him that we will be accountable. So we Christians, we have a special perspective. We know that we have been bought, and we know that we will be judged. So we know we have been bought. We know that we will be judged, And so faith and hope in God are to bring about our actions in Christ. Look at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So God's action in Jesus is the focus of our faith in Christ and our hope for the future. Even as we believe that Christ was crucified and raised again by God, so we Christians know the reality of the coming vindication of that faith in the final judgment. So this is our our special perspective, our special outlook on life. We don't look around at the world in the same way everybody else does because of what we know about the past, how he's redeemed us, and the future, the judgment, and therefore what we are right now. Now, friends, it's only when you get those two things in line, our identity and our outlook, that then we begin to think correctly about our living, what we do, our conduct. We see how Christians have a special character. We live differently. So you see, in our our churches, I'm here for a Nine Marks conference, in our churches, when we practice church discipline, when we excommunicate someone, we're not so much acting as the moral police going, no, no, you may not do that. We're saying, oh, you're doing that? You're doing that unrepentantly? Like we've been really clear with you what that, what that, that that's wrong, that God says that's wrong, that how that's not loving to God, it's not loving to others, and, and yet you are deciding to persist? Ah, oh, well, then that makes us reevaluate your identity 
who you are. And because we love you, we want to speak the truth to you about who you are. Your actions are beginning to convince us that you aren't who you said you were. Maybe you're not even who you genuinely think you are. We've got to tell you that your actions are showing us your heart, and your heart has not been one to God. It's not been born again, because you clearly love your sin more than the Savior. And because we love you, we'll tell you that. So Peter does get to behavior, to action here in the letter, because Christians do live differently. And look how we mainly live differently. It's that we love. Love characterizes these Christians. You see what he says there in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now what's Peter referring to when he says here, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth? That could sound kind of ungracious, kind of self-salvation-like. What does Peter mean? Well, I'll admit, I'm not entirely sure. I think we can understand it well enough if we take the most clear stuff first and then work from the most clear stuff to the less clear stuff. So generally, if there's something you're reading in God's Word that you don't understand, if you'll just take it and lay it down on a piece of paper, pray, and then divide it into parts, take those parts that are really clear and say, well, I really don't have a question about that. Well, I understand what, what, what's meant here. It's this phrase right here that I'm not sure about. Well, that's fine. Make those parts clear in your own mind that are clear. And then in the light of those, turn and look at what is less clear. So just doing that here with this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth in verse 22. Um, I think if we take that second phrase first, obedience to the truth. Well, look up at verse 2 in chapter 1. Look up at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's interesting. We're sprinkling with his blood. So Christians were elected for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This seems to clearly be a reference to salvation. So becoming obedient to the truth would mean accepting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Jesus put it, repenting and believing. Not as two steps, but as one whole action, which lacking either part, lacking either the repenting or the believing, neither one is real. So you repent and believe. That's how you respond savingly to Christ. You, you repent and believe. So Peter is saying that these Christians had obeyed the truth. Okay, so now we turn to that first phrase, having purified your souls. Well, as a Jewish Christian, Peter was very used to that kind of language. That's ritual language from Judaism. You talk about purifying yourself uh, when you were going to make a sacrifice. And Christians picked up on that language and used it to refer to the true cleansing that comes at conversion. Uh, you'll find other letters of the New Testament using that. James and John will use that kind of language. Peter sees here a different, more true way that these Christians had purified themselves by being washed, not with ceremonially clean water or with animal blood, but washed, 
washed spiritually, verse 19, by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just want to make sure you understand this. This is what we Christians think is the tipping point. You know, your life, if you are not a Christian, is absolutely, unutterably miserable, and it is going to get worse. And you may or may not perceive that. You may painfully perceive that. And I don't say that with any glee or joy. I've got non-Christian relatives I love dearly. But the Bible teaches us that we were made to know God, and when we don't know God, we just use a bunch of other stuff to try to fill ourselves up, and none of it works. And time shows that. So your lot is to have a very frustrated life that's about to get unutterably worse when you die because you don't stop existing. You continue to exist under God's very good wrath, his very appropriate justice against you for the way you've taken the gift of this life and misused it so badly. God, in his amazing love, sent his only son, who, as we read earlier from Philippians, became a man, and he lived a life of perfect trust in his heavenly Father, loving us by living in reliance on his heavenly Father, showing us how we should all live and how we've all failed to live, and then also dying on the cross like those animal sacrifices had died, but they never saved anyone. They just were teaching lessons. They were all pointing to him, the one true sacrifice that truly is effective. Christ's death is effective for your sins against God if you will turn from your sins and trust in Christ. God raised him from the dead to show that he had accepted the sacrifice. He ascended to heaven where he presented it to his heavenly Father, and he calls every person now to turn from their sins and trust in him. If you want to know more about what that would mean in your own life, you're in a really good room in Wake Forest to do that right now. There are lots of Christians here. There are Christians who are even paying money to be taught as Christians. So these are some very dedicated Christians here. So you're in a very good room. So please, before you worry about what you're going to have for lunch or dinner today, try to figure out what your relationship with God is. Talk to someone about that. Come to find this tipping point in your own life where you see what it means to be purchased with a lamb with his blood without blemish or spot, to be converted. Paul, uh, Peter says here it's because of their conversion of God's working in their hearts as he had that they could now have a sincere brotherly love. Because of God's working purifying them, they could now have unfeigned, that is literally unhypocritical, unmasked, sincere love in their hearts for their brothers. Indeed, this love is what particularly marks out the change in their lives. Given the fact that we read up in verse 14 of the evil desires they had before they were Christians, it seems that this unhypocritical love is the very proof of their conversion. Do you care about other people? Do you care about them, not supremely for how they think about you or relate to you, but for how they think about God and how they relate to God? Well, if so, brother, sister, that's the nub of Christian love. 
Augustine, in his, in his great little work on morals of the Catholic Church, by which he means the universal church, the, the church, the Christian church, talks about how to truly love anyone, we have to desire that which is best for them. That which is best is to love God supremely. If that's what you're trying to do yourself, then for you to love someone else means you want to help bring them to love God supremely. That's how we love as Christians. It's interesting, though, that Peter here also commands them to love one another in verse 22. Just look at verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, if they're already doing it, why command it as if they weren't doing it? But you know, this can be a characteristic of us and also a command to us. That's very common in the Bible. If you think of hope, just use this as another example. Look up in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But then look down at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He describes Christians as having hope, and yet he exhorts them up in verse 13 to set their hope. Well, that's what we find in the Bible. Our identity is what we are, and yet our identity is also what we're commanded to be. Paul commands these Christians to love each other. They are to be brothers in the best sense of the word. And this is what it looks like when it's all put together. It's interesting, isn't it? So much goes into something that looks so simple. Imagine just the simplest act of love between two Christians. You know, a kindness that wouldn't happen in the world. And you see all that Peter says has gone into that. The change in perspective, the change in the person loving and being loved. All of this tremendous cosmological stuff has gone into just creating this simple reflection of God's own love, of his own character. Much of this letter of 1 Peter is concerned with shoring up the morale of the Christians over against the opposition they were facing in the world. Very little has to do with internal church matters. So back to my first concern I mentioned about us not knowing our Bibles well enough. So particularly you preacher types, if you want to tell your people where to go to in the New Testament to talk about internal church stuff, where would you tell them to look? Give me, give me a hand. I got to have a hand, and my guys better not answer anything. Yes, Grant? Say what? First Corinthians. There is a most obvious answer. Okay, can anybody give us more than just that answer, the obvious answer? It's a great answer, but what are, where else? Yep, name? Luke? First Timothy, great answer. Yeah, because Paul's writing to a pastor. Okay, where else? Internal church matters. Where else would you go to in the New Testament? First Corinthians, First Timothy, these are good answers. I want more. Now I've got to have a name. Put up your hand. Hello, David. Matthew's gospel? You think it goes of verses 16, or chapter 16 and 18? Okay. True, deeply theological, excellent. Uh, sermon on that, yeah, there's a lot of good ethics in there. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's an unusually mature answer. Um, I want a simpler answer. That's a good one. I'd like, get, go to the epistles, all right? Let's stick in the epistles for answering this. Yes, what's your name? Say again. Luis? Ephesians. Yes. Yeah, the second half especially, yeah. Yeah, the first half will give you a wonderful theology, and the second half, some very practical stuff for the local church, internal matters. Where else? 
Yep. First John. First John. Yes, excellent. Ethical love, morality. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Somebody else. Where else in the New Testament for internal church matters? Yeah. Second Peter. What are you thinking of in Second Peter? False teaching. That's true. That's a great answer. Yeah, of course. Galatians would fit in with that also. Yeah, okay, so it's the teaching stuff. Galatians, Second Peter, Jude, Jude, great answers. All right, where else? Anything else for internal church matters? No. Uh, yes. Say again. Hiram. Philippians. Okay, you Odean Syntyche, that's true. All right, somebody else? Yep. Griffin Philemon. I mean, there's certainly implications there. I think of that especially in terms of personal relationship. But that's, I could be pushed on that. Anything else? Yeah. Enrique? Enrique? Revelation 2 and 3. Superb answer. Yep. Yes? Jake, the end of Romans. Definitely. Super practical. 12, 14. Yeah. Okay, anything else? There's one obvious one I think that nobody said. Yeah. The entire book of Acts, that's a really good answer. The question that gets really complicated is what in there is unique because of the apostles and what are we meant to reproduce? You're right, that's a really important answer. It it can sometimes be a little, whereas with the epistles, it's just kind of boxed and ready to go. So, yeah. Yeah. Say again. Galatians, yeah. I mentioned earlier when the brother said uh, 2 Peter, when it gets a false teaching, Galatians is super helpful. and works of the flesh, works of the spirit, a fruit of the spirit. The, the one I'm thinking about that nobody said is James. I think James is one of those practical books for internal church stuff because there's so much about selfishness and conflict and how you, you know, to regard, how you regard rich people at church, you know, there in James chapter two. Anyway, I've used up all my time doing Q&A, but it's such good stuff to think about. You know, the Bible. Okay. Peter is more in this first letter He's more talking about who we Christians are, but he does touch on those internal church matters about how they should live together. Just look over in chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Or then look over in chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that everything in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Anyway, Peter clearly presents that we Christians are to live in love. So if, if you're here and you're wanting a summary of moral teaching, this is really a summary of Jesus' moral teaching. Love one another. When the lawyer asks Jesus for the summary, he says two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is a summary of the Christian's commands. And for how we're to treat each other, it's love one another. And that's what Christians do. And it's interesting. It all seems to be a package deal. So it's not like you have these unloving Christians over here and these loving Christians over here. Now, 
all of us are, who are truly are Christians are imperfectly loving. And so that's where some very interesting questions come. But if you see people sort of committed to unloving actions, well, that begins to raise questions about the validity of their Christianity. And I think we have to take that very seriously from 1 Peter, because Christians love. Peter assumes that if you are not being conformed to your previous evil desires, but if you are holy and purchased and living as strangers in reverent fear and prepared, self-controlled and hoping, then you will love deeply. And that a lack of such sincere love calls a lot of other things into question as well. So I can think you're not loving just because you're young and you're not taught well. But that's the best diagnosis I could give, the most hopeful. A serious lack of love on your part, regardless of how many Bible verses you know or how much money you give to the church, suggests that you don't know God, that in fact you are his enemy because you're just using an appearance of religion in some way to serve yourself and not to love God and others. I'm not saying that it's not difficult to love deeply and sincerely. Every spouse here knows how hard that can be. Any parent or child, any good Christian friend. I'm sure I've failed effectively in loving so many folks. But friends, the continuing attempt, even with failure, rather than a cool indifference, must be closer to what Peter is writing about here, of that sincere love of the brothers from the heart. That's what characterizes Christians. So Christians have a special character. Now, I wonder when it comes to you, from day to day, do you feel much like a stranger? Do you seem to live differently? Peter's not advocating societies here for the reformation of morals as if Christians were to do nothing but try to prepare a, a better legalism for people to live in. It's interesting, in our intern uh, papers, and the brothers here would happily talk to you about our internship program. If you want to be a pastor of a church and you're thinking, oh, I wonder if that internship program would be useful. They're going to hang around here for a few minutes afterwards and talk to people. Um, but two of the brothers, Christian and John, are from Kenya. And it's interesting, in their papers that we're going to be discussing this afternoon, and if you're really curious about our internship program, you want to be a pastor, you're welcome to talk to me or one of them about sitting in on our intern discussion this afternoon here on campus, where we're just going to have one of our real discussions that we normally have Thursday morning, but I'm here with you guys right now, so we couldn't do it like we normally do, so we're going to do it this afternoon. But in two of their papers, they talked about problems in churches in Kenya just wanting to make people good Kenyans, to make them better citizens of Kenya and how that's insufficient for the gospel. And I think that's true. We'll talk about that more this afternoon, brothers, but I thought you were both insightful in making those comments. And as I read First Peter, I just thought Peter is concerned that their lives display this whole new kind of life that's oriented to God and in love of others. And there are all kinds of political and national questions that are important, but it's not the same thing. The Christians can actually disagree on how to best structure the government in Kenya but they can't be unloving toward each other. They must love. So if living a different life, a holy life, was difficult in Peter's time, it's no less so today. And yet if holiness of life seems difficult, we have to realize that it means that 
It's a striking witness. As Spurgeon once observed, it's only things that are alive that go against the current. The dead things always flow downstream. Friends, the stream is running strongly against Christian faith and morals. Being faithful to your husband or wife may have been normal yesterday is increasingly a witness today. Waiting to experience sexual intimacy first with your spouse may have been normal yesterday. It's increasingly a witness today. Filling out tax reforms honestly may have been normal yesterday. It's increasingly a witness today. Answering your your teacher truthfully may have been normal yesterday. It's increasingly a witness today. I'm not saying we should relish growing darkness in our culture, but we shouldn't be slow to grasp the opportunities that God gives us for glorifying him, whatever situation he puts us in. History will show how our generation of Christians distinguishes itself from the world or fails to do that. But if God calls you and me, if he calls our churches to live in stormy times, when the poor florist in Washington State is again being taken to court and the Supreme Court of the state of Washington has upheld her being held to have done something wrong when the Supreme Court of the United States has already said she's okay in it, but times are that hard for trying to be faithful to Christ, you can be certain that the God who is sovereign over the times will give us the legs and the stomach for the task. All of us who are Christians know the pressure from the world to blend in, in what we do, in who we think of ourselves as being, in how we feel and think, and especially love. Born of God, Christians bend our wills to his. Bought in love by his blood, Christians similarly give ourselves for each other even as Christ gave himself for us. Soldiers prepared, uh, children of God, strangers to the world, slaves redeemed, deeply loving. Christians are all of these. Who trusts like this? Who believes in the unseen? Who gives themselves so fully for others? Where do we see such faith and such hope and such love? Friends, Christians are special, and we live like it. Imperfectly, yes. Haltingly, certainly. But consistently, so much so as to be characteristically, because it is God who is doing this work, and he will not fail in it. Fathered by the Holy Spirit, redeemed by Christ, mindful of the coming judgment of God, Christians are special. We have a special identity and a special perspective and special characteristics. We are different. We see things differently. We live differently because we see things differently because we just are different. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your comprehensive love for us in Christ. We pray that you would make us more of what you have bought us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.